have you always been confident? No, no. I was terrible. <laughs> Absolutely the opposite. I think I was born with the most sensitive temperament ever. I used to have, te- well, I still have some physical tics. If I get anxious, my head will tick to the side and I have a strange neck movement and I'm totally okay with that. I'm very open about it. But when I was a child, I mean, it was really bad. I used to put my skirt over my head if anybody came near me, which is a terrible coping strategy as a child. I mean, I don't think that the way to deal with confidence is to show people your knickers, but that was kind of what (laughs) I obviously decided as a young kid made sense. God love me. Hello and welcome to the Virtually Confident Podcast where you will walk away with confidence tips to help you hold your head up high and have a bit of a bounce in your step. And I'm Esther Stanhope, the Impact Guru, and I'm a former BBC producer turned impact guru, somebody to help you have more personal impact. And this podcast series is such a treat because you get to hear from experts who know about things like frontal cortexes. Do you hear that? Frontal cortex. How's your frontal cortex today? My guest today, I am absolutely delighted and my brain is popping at the thought of her. It's Emma Kenny, the media psychologist. She's a TV presenter. She's somebody that knows how your brain works. And my gosh, she knows about confidence and how to build your confidence. And she's got loads of tips that she's going to share. Hello, Emma Kenny. How are you today? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Well, as good as can be expected, right? Like you said, my prefrontal cortex is a little bit fried at the moment. But apart from that, I think it's quite an experience that we're all going through. I can't wait to hear more about our prefrontal cortex. (laughs) (laughs) So now we're recording this post-COVID-19, right at the cusp of being in the next new abnormal, whatever that means. We haven't quite gone back to normal life, but we're almost there. And we've spent the last year being kind of in prison in our own houses. (laughs) We have been in lockdown. Um, How's it been for you? Yeah, I mean, I definitely prefer it when it's not lockdown. There's absolutely no doubt about it. I think that I've adapted like most people have, but I found it relatively challenging. I mean, I don't like not going to work and I don't like not seeing lots of people. And I definitely don't like being told who I'm allowed to and who I'm not allowed to see because I'm human. So as a good old human animal, a bit like our primate cousins, you know, the chimpanzee, 98.8% related, they're not locked down because it's not necessarily good for us as far as (laughs) our actual social, psychological and emotional selves are concerned. Obviously, we've dealt with it. We've gone through it. I'm just going to be very glad to see the back of it without a doubt. Absolutely. Now you've got you've got a lot of technical equipment in your house. I'm actually looking at you in your living room with your ironing board <laughs> and your microphone. This is, this is actually my clinic, but you can't see it at the moment. Oh, I have indeed got an ironing board. I mean, every good therapy clinic requires an ironing board, but it's actually where I'm storing kind of all my technical stuff for my radio shows and things like that. So it's had to become an ad hoc, like most of us had. Suddenly we've got a place where we work, live, sleep, bring up children, right? So this Absolutely. is my kind of hub of technical stroke domestic activities. Well, we are only looking at each other for technical reasons. I did say, don't worry, you are not going to be on camera. So bring the ironing board. Yeah, that's right. I've literally brought the ironing, not the kitchen sink, just the ironing board. (laughs) Now, um, how have you found it then doing digital and online and radio broadcasting? Is it something that comes naturally to you? I mean, I'm lucky in the fact that 
for the past 14 years, I've done TV. And before that, I trained people. So you get used to public speaking. But it's just part and parcel of what you do, isn't it? What you grow used to, you kind of fake it till you make it. I've not enjoyed the online world anywhere near as much as I enjoyed the physical world. I love people. I really enjoy feeling energy. I like the experience of the tangible experience of just kind of being present with somebody, whether that's in therapy or in a boardroom or on TV. So I've missed that. But then at the same time, I'm amazed at how amazing technology is. So I'm not going to deny that it's been better because we've had these options. I can't imagine what it... Well, no one would have known. That's actually... I was going to say, I can't imagine how I'd have been <laughs> without technology. But we wouldn't have known, would we? We'd have just carried on about our business probably. But yeah, I'm glad we've had it during this experience. So let's dive into um, what our brains are doing and how we're coping with all these Zoom calls and Teams mm. and blue jeans and all the rest of it. I mean, I work in the corporate world where people are doing meeting after meeting right. after meeting. And now when I first started using Zoom and I, and I changed from GoToWebinar to, to the Zoom platform and... I'm not really a knobs and buttons person, Yeah. Um, naturally. I mean, I've learned technology. I've been in broadcasting for many years at the BBC. I had to learn how to make the studio go live. Quite often, it didn't, it didn't. go live. <laughs> <laughs> Mikos will know all about that. He's our technical person oh, today. Brilliant. <laughs> Have you ever done that? Now we're live on air. Silence. <laughs> um, so I mean, when I first started doing Zoom masterclasses in front of hundreds of people in banks and things, you know, I had a few incidents where there's no sound um, and or people's mics are, you know, and then yeah. you, you have this, all this loads. I mean, people have turned up as cats, potatoes, <laughs> sausages, you it name it. There's been naked bodies. I'm not We've a cat. <laughs> I'm not a cat. I yeah. am alive. Um, and then we've had various sausages turning up in different Brilliant. forms, right? But actually, a lot of it was, it's kind of weird, that psychological paranoia. You're looking at the screen. First of all, the camera's there, and that freaks people out. When I've done work with my clients with cameras before, I used to call it, the camera was like shining a torch into your inner confidence. So first of all, you've got the camera looking yeah. at you. But then you've got faces looking at you <laughs> with no expression. So from your point of view, from a psychological point of view, how is that going to really mess us up? <laughs> <laughs> like the biggest experiment that we've ever seen being played out. I do yeah. wonder what the ethics would have been like. So when you do studies and you do research, there has to be an ethical kind of committee who looks at whether they think it is. And I can imagine trying to suggest what we've just been through and it would have just been thrown out immediately because it would have been seen as something that would have potentially damaging impact, which you can't do ethically. So we've been put and thrust into a very unusual situation and it is experimental because of the fact that we don't know what the long-term impact is. I am always really optimistic. I think human beings are much more resilient than they believe. And I think that we're really adaptable, which is why we've all been so well behaved and just got on with things and not questioned that much and just accepted the status quo. And to some degree, we will adapt in unison as we would do when we lock down, when we go back out there. But I do think that there's going to be some concerns for us because, for example, Zoom or Teams or any of those ones that you're using constantly, there are loads of pitfalls because people don't have breaks and therefore they're just constantly on a meeting and they don't necessarily get to express themselves in the way they would ordinarily because it's a different kind of behavior mechanism. And also a lot of people, let's say classic extroverts, they like to be around other people to get the energy levels. So it's affected us in that way, but also just on a stress level. The problem is with your brain, 
brain. It's amazing, incredible. But your prefrontal cortex is really important for really higher thinking and what we're doing now, having a conversation and trying to figure out where we are, what we're saying, what we're doing, what we're feeling. But when it gets impacted by anxiety and stress, it kind of squashes it a little bit. It kind of limits it a little bit. And then the area of your brain called the amygdala takes over, which is the fight, flight, freeze response. So a lot of us are sitting down feeling like we can't really think, not necessarily being able to focus in the way that we did before, and also feeling on high alert. So it's a sense of, I don't know what's wrong. I just feel that something is wrong. And even though actually your world might be perfectly safe, it's that you've been almost brought to this position where you feel that there must be something really badly wrong because otherwise your environment wouldn't have shifted so much. And that impacts on the way that you interact with the world around you. So add that to parenting at home, living with a partner 24-7 every hours a day, and also being on Zoom constantly or whatever your choice is. It's going to frazzle you. It really is. It's going to exhaust you. It's going to cause lockdown lethargy. It's going to cause potential compassion fatigue, which is burnout. And like it or otherwise, we're seeing more and more people struggling that way. I do think they'll adapt back. And I think that we'll take some of the good things, such as flexible working with us. But certainly it's a challenge right now. Absolutely. And I'm really fascinated by the psychological impact that it has when you're in a pitch team, for example, and you've got senior people there. Mm. And I've, I've been running large scale masterclasses with hundreds of people sometimes. And I've actually, I actually quite enjoy it now. I mean, I, it really did freak me out at the beginning, even though I've done loads of online stuff. I've done radio for years. I mean, I've produced, a, you know, 12 and a half thousand live hours of of radio and television or more but when it but when it comes to the 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 kind of meetings and the pitching you've got senior people there there's all kinds of dynamic different dynamics going on um i really i could feel it was freaking me out and sometimes after uh, after say you know a one hour session with a group of say 12 people you know i i put everything into it and i am an extrovert and i do find it i have to put double the energy sometimes into the remote setting. But sometimes I would find myself, don't don't judge me, please, but I'd find myself sweating. Yeah. I was sweating. I had to get a fan for my mini, I've got a little mini studio um, in my office now, so it's quite enclosed. I had to get a silent fan because I was literally, I started sweating. (laughs) And I I told my mum, I said, I was sweating a lot. She said, you know what, after we do our family Zoom I haven't, she said, I haven't sweated for, she's in her 80s. She says, I haven't sweated for years. I've actually got sweat patches after that family Zoom. Yeah. She said, what is it about Zoom? Why is it, why is it bringing us out in a sweat? Does that sound normal? It's normal if you're feeling a bit stressed. You know, stress and anxiety causes sweating without a doubt. I do think as well that sitting in front of a hot laptop and wearing earphones <laughs> so can also be something that contributes or not necessarily thinking about sitting in one position position when the heating has gone on. It's just all of those little things. But yeah, sweating is definitely an anxiety response. And people are more anxious than normal. We all are. Even if you've had a really great lockdown experience and you might really be enjoying the fact that you just get to be in your house maybe you've been in a situation where you've been quite lucky and privileged financially you're still going to be more stressed than normal because it's not an experience that humans are meant to go through humans are meant to be surrounded by lots of other people we're meant to be surrounded by community family social experience and we were doing a bad job of it anyway 
we weren't doing well, which is why mental health levels aren't at a good level in our society. It isn't. The Western world is not very good around mental health. Whereas when you look at our counterparts elsewhere, we can see much happier levels. Costa Rica, for example, brilliantly happy place, very poor, incredibly happy. So wealth and happiness don't synergize. What we were doing badly and what we've learned even further as far as this lesson is concerned, is that we have lost our sense of what makes us really connected. So connection is everything. It's about what makes us happy, what makes us healthy, what makes us love, what makes us have friendship. All these things is about that thing, connection. And online, it's great that we've got that option, particularly, as you've just said, it can bring hundreds and hundreds of people together in one space without them having to leave the home. means that you can be more productive and effective, but it's really bad for you if that's all you do. It's really bad. I mean, people can market it however they want to, and they can tell me whatever research they want to throw at me, but they'll be lying. It's really bad, and we need a mix. It's great to have flexibility. It's great to be able to meet somebody that you wouldn't ordinarily get to meet because they can fit you in for 15-minute Zoom. That's something that would never have happened before. It's awesome, but it's really bad for us, as long, you know, unless we get a balance. Absolutely. So, okay, we're going to get to tips towards the end, but we might as well do a few quick tips now. While we're on the remote world and while we're on <laughs> burnout and all those themes, because this, this is, I mean, we are going to be not traveling on aeroplanes for quite a long time when we are going to be doing more videos, probably in the office with other colleagues, office to office video, then a, then a hybrid of video and human beings, which is actually a whole level of stress on it, on its own. So let's just, let's let's think about some things that we can put into place some really simple practical things i.e take a break (laughs) yeah people are really bad at taking breaks I think that there are lots of different things that you can do but I think that thing about working your plan is always the most important so make sure that you get up at a time on a daily basis ideally at the same time so habits are really important for humans it makes us feel like we thrive and also it gets us into an embedded pattern at the moment a lot of people are struggling with memory and that's partly because our routine has been disrupted and we like routine it's a bit like when you remember things in the past you tend to have like an order to the way that you remember it and it's because you've embedded a habit it's a bit like when you go into the office and you get to 11 o'clock and you're like I'll definitely have a coffee now and you might have done that for 15 years it's just part of your nature we've lost that we've interrupted it so the more that you can work your plan, which means getting up at the same time in the morning, making sure that you plan your work schedule scrupulously with lots of breaks in them. You know, you want good few 15 minute breaks, getting outside, making sure that you're going to have a glass of water, maybe do some downward dog, which sounds ridiculous, but actually has been proven to reduce stress and increase productivity. There are little tips like that, but also to just note that feeling of being frazzled. I think that what people do is they say, this is my start of my day. This is my end of my day. And I've got to fit all of this in there, no matter how I feel. That is not a productive way to be. You know, when we look at counterparts in countries where they work six hours a day, productivity went up and so did the way that they felt about their work. They felt great about it because they were working smarter, not harder. I think also make sure that you recognize the impact of those human needs. So eating a healthy diet. And we talk about this constantly and people roll their eyes, but you genuinely are to some degree what you eat. You know, what you put in your body is fuel. The more that you fuel it, brilliantly, the more likely your body will be brilliant in that respect. Get outside in the white light. I say that to everybody. If you can get one to two hours a night or well, one to two hours a day, I should say, in the white light, that's really important because it helps regulate melatonin and the hormones in the brain that gives us restful sleep. And then the other thing that I'd say is when you said, you know, just stop that kind of take a break, you shouldn't be online at all for two to three hours before you go to bed at all. 
And I say that to people and people look at me like I've literally lost my mind. Like, how is this a feature of possibility that I would not be connected directly to my phone for three hours or on screen? This is a ridiculous idea. And people literally look at you like you've gone mad. But what I'm saying is if you really want to be brain healthy and brain happy, then that's how you have to train yourself. Oh, I love that. Brain happy. And we are going to be talking about your app, uh, which is kind of counterintuitive because an app is based on a phone, but we'll talk about that in a moment. Yeah, yeah. So let me just go down, hang on, hang on. So, because we're going to be talking about confidence in a moment. And so I'm thinking if I'm getting my, if I want to be brain happy and confident, I've got to do some good daily habits. And I, I must say, I'm actually very, very proud of myself because I've been doing yoga in the morning. Love it. And I'm not, I'm not a yogi. I'm not like a, you know, the, I'm not really hippie type because I'm, I'm too, I've got itchy feet. I'm, I'm an extrovert. I'm a busy person. I'm, I'm a bit of a rush, rush, busy, busy person. Um, verging on workaholic, verging on, you know, filling my diary so it's ridiculous. <laughs> However, I have adopted a habit um, of doing, you said downward dog. If you don't know what downward dog is, it's basically a yoga move where you've kind of got your, you're on all fours and you stick your bottom up in the air. Yeah, that's exactly You stick it. your sit bone towards the yeah. ceiling, darling. And then you're kind of like just in an inverted position. So I do my downward dogs. I actually do my, I do cat, dog, cow, plank. Right? Brilliant. So like a mini salutation to the sun three times in the mornings. It takes about... It takes about seven or eight minutes. And, and if I think, oh, I'll do a proper work, proper workout this morning, I quite often, it, it might put me off. So I just stick to this seven or eight minutes and I do it every single morning without fail. Um, and then I go for a really long walk and I think, oh, you know, I've got my 10,000, 15,000 steps. The problem is, though, as soon as I'm back, as soon as I, I start my emails, my day just becomes packed mm. with meetings and writing then follow-ups then writing then writing a proposal then a, a call then a zoom and then writing and then getting ready and I've got to quick and then I, and then I go in the kitchen with my phone and I go away from my computer and then I've got my phone in the kitchen while I'm and then my phone there are still emails firing at me and then I'm looking at LinkedIn profile and then I'm looking at the social media yeah. and, and then yeah. I, and sometimes I can do that without stopping mm. so I, I started yeah that's partly because you've been trained I mean that's the whole premise of technology where we train you we send you your notifications to train you to look so your obedience it's your obedience it's not your workaholic status you've become obedient to it so breaking that cycle isn't breaking it because you can't afford not to look at that email you can yeah, it's about yeah. breaking the obedience cycle but they're very clever the whole premise of technology is to make you firstly feel like you need it secondly feel lost without it and most importantly call you back when it demands that's Ooh, the job. So yes. I know that because I work in tech. And as you yeah. said, I'm part of that, but I'm trying to do it positively. But the point is I don't underestimate its power. And I choose to actually leave my phone down because if I don't, I'm the same. I will always think, what if I miss? You know, that fear of missing out. What FOMO. if I miss? And it's FOMO. like, well, in the nineties, I didn't think like that. <laughs> so why do I need to think like that now? And if that job really does come in, and they find somebody else within 17 minutes or whatever, then there probably wasn't going to be the first choice anyway, was I? So it kind of comes down to that willingness to negotiate with yourself. And I think that confidence, the thing about confidence is it can be internal, which is where it's really strong and resilient, or it can be external where other people tell you that you're good at things and you accept it, but you never really truly absorb it. So for mm. me, 
if I'm going to be a slave to my phone, if I'm going to be a slave to my TV, then I'm not really internally as confident as I need to be, if that makes sense. I've got to be able to know what makes me healthy and well. And you're probably one of those people that you feed off your success. You love it. It's not really a job for you. You've created a career that is around something that makes you thrive. So it's a slightly different position to somebody who's a slave to their job. You know, you've chosen a job that you thriving and you love and it's on your terms in your time and you might overexert yourself but it's still in your terms in your time and that's a really important mindset to have I think because then you're actively choosing it as opposed to feeling that you have no choice within that. Yeah and I I think what I'm going to do now is I'm actually going to on the back of this another practical takeaway today (laughs) folks I'm actually going to create a proper afternoon habit, an, yeah. a habit that just breaks the day up. Yeah. So so you can actually reset yourself. I mean, because I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty good. I mean, I've you know, I've been to lectures and you know read read books on you know timing of your brain and all that kind of stuff. And I'm really and I'm really um, mindful of the creative time for me is the morning. So I, I do create my tasks, my creative tasks. When I'm writing, I do it in the morning, try and get calls in the afternoon and things where, you know, anything to do with kind of paperwork and things where you don't have to create a new idea. Yeah. Um, Try and keep that for the afternoon. And then, then sometimes I worry, what if I have an idea? I have to write it down. I have to quickly write this blog now because I might not ever think again. Like, uh, what, what is that? Why do I think I'm never going to remember a good blog? I'm never going to remember the chapter of the book. Yeah, I think that's. I think I don't think that's a bad thing that you would think that way because when you have a great idea, if you don't write it down, you will probably lose it because again, memory is about embedding. So writing yeah. it down is a really physical, practical way of doing it. It's the same with when people are struggling with their memory. I always get them to write a diary of their day. Because when you do a diary of a day, it kind of helps you to recount and reflect and also engage with whatever's happened, but it also embeds it. And that's what you want to do with that memory base. You want to embed it. So I think that's a good thing that you're doing that. As long as it's not like three o'clock in the morning, every single morning (laughs) where you're waking up and going, that was an amazing dream. I'm just going to write that down now for the next two hours. But I think that it's your nature as well, that you enjoy that interaction, which comes from engaging with your own brain. Absolutely. So we talked the other day when we were t- talking about doing this podcast and we were talking about confidence and imposter syndrome. Yeah. And I was saying, you know, have you, you know, have you always been confident? No, you know? I was terrible. <laughs> Absolutely the opposite. I think I was born with the most sensitive temperament ever. I used to have, te- well, I still have some physical tics. If I get anxious, my head will tick to the side and I have a strange neck movement and I'm totally okay with that. I'm very open about it. But when I was a child, I mean, it was really bad. I used to put my skirt over my head if anybody came near me, which is a terrible coping strategy as a child. I mean, I don't think that the way to deal with confidence is to show people your knickers, but that was kind of what (laughs) I obviously decided as a young kid made sense. God love me. And then I started with kind of really quite physical tics because I was so, so anxious. And my mum would be walking down the road with me when I was maybe like seven or eight and I'd be coughing and blinking and contorting. And I just think she must have just thought, God, what have I given birth to? This child is just so neurologically, you know, complex. She's so full of neuroses. And I was, but I needed to physicalize the intense anxiety I felt inside. So my tics were a result of that. As I've got older, I probably got to 11. I remembered thinking this is probably not the best way to experience the world. And I used to look at the older girls at my school and imagine what it must be like to 
be them. And then I'd start articulating that. So in private, I'd imagine that I was a particular person and I'd try to formulate the way that they'd speak differently to the way I'd speak. And that taught me very quickly that everything that you think is intrinsic to you can be manipulated to some degree. So I started to really work on that. And then I wouldn't say, I genuinely mean this, I wouldn't say that I'm a really confident person. What I'd say is I'm a really confident presenter. I've learned how to speak with my truth and to be authentic and to not necessarily need to rely too much on anything other than what I feel and express to kind of get me through. But that's probably the most confident area. People, solutions, problems, and speaking about areas that I feel really dedicated and committed to. I think I've found my little police of perfect, if that makes sense, regarding communication and style. And I use that well, but I still definitely at moments in my life have crises of confidence. And I think that's what helps me grow. Definitely think that's what makes me grow. I never, ever learn anything really good in the good times. I tend to (laughs) learn good things in really bad times. And I'm like, all right, that's been pretty painful, but I'm really glad I know that now. And it kind of becomes part of your toolkit, right? So I think that confidence, when people say, are you confident? I think people have this really clear stereotype of what that means, but I just don't think it does mean that. Like I work with some people who are just so diligent and incredibly confident at what they do. But if you put them in front of a group of people, they'd just be like, what? Why am I having to say anything in front of these people? It's my worst nightmare. So they are confident brilliantly, but in a certain skill set. So I think that a lot of us imagine that confidence looks, smells, seems a certain way. But sometimes it's just about owning your space and knowing that you're great at that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I was a very, very confident producer at the BBC for many years working in television. But when it put me in front of an audience, I was absolutely... my I, Every time, nearly, my mind would go blank. I, I just had classic stage fright. I've done drama, I've done all these things, but I've never been able to... to um, be the person on the stage or the person presenting. And, and you're laughing now, you're thinking, well, you're, just, you're presenting a podcast, what are you talking about, you idiot? I wrote a book about it, right? I wrote a book called Goodbye Glossophobia, Banish Your Fear of Public... Oh, yeah, of course, <laughs> Banish Your Fear of Public Speaking. Because I, because I had to write it down because I thought, I actually have figured out how to do this, right? Because I was the person that... I didn't so much get ticks or... My physical reactions, more as we could hear, more sweaty than ticks. <laughs> <laughs> but I really struggled with 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 being the, a confident person in front of people with the spotlight on me. It, but I was very, very confident as long as I was putting all my energy out into into other people. Um, and and I and I'm not quite sure. I don't really know. I never knew where that came from. But when, when, when I'm listening to you talking about what you're thinking and your thoughts can change your neural pathways, I presume, yeah. and, and help you, and then you become competent at something. And if you push yourself and, wow, I push myself and, I've got, and I got it wrong and I still get it wrong sometimes. And sometimes I get a fright and I suddenly yeah. think, oh, I'm an idiot. I shouldn't be here. Oh my god, I'm not I'm not clever enough. I'm not clever enough quick and I go into this panic mode even though now it's my job to speak in public nearly every day and I still have the odd oh Yeah. No, you know, panic but mode. I think that's a good thing though. I think it's good to yeah. have the old self-check. And also with imposter syndrome, the only people I've ever met with imposter syndrome are incredibly diligent, clever, bright people who underestimate that they've just massively found their natural fit. So people will be like, why do I find this really easy where John over there is really struggling? It must be because I'm not doing enough. Whereas actually, it's just that you're naturally found your fit. And when you do that, it's Pareto's rule. You know, I remember leaving my job 
years ago because I was practicing. I was running a mental health service. It was great. I loved it. I loved my clients. I loved the staff. But I remember thinking, why do I have to fill in so many pieces of paper when actually my job is to soothe and heal? That's my job. My job is to soothe and heal and to connect with people. And yet, if I wanted to order something for my staff, you know, it took six months and then they sent the wrong thing. And I remember thinking to myself one day, this isn't the way that I think I want to work. And then I read about Pareto's law, which is that 80% of your success comes from 20% of your actions. And I remember thinking to myself, that's it. 80% of my success comes from what I say and what I solve. That's it. The rest of it is collateral. And it's usually collateral that weighs me down more and isn't really something that I enjoy. So if I just take that 20% that I really get my success from, and then all I do is that, And that's what I did. And it served me very well because now all I really do is speak, listen and write. That's it. I don't really do anything else unless maybe I might bake a cake occasionally, you know. Yeah. What flavour? What flavour cake do you... Oh, um, you know, any. Cake's great, isn't it? (laughs) You know what I mean? I'll give it a shot. It would, be car- were- it would be carrot cake with mascarpone and cinnamon icing all the time if it was up to me. But unfortunately, I'm the only one in the family who likes it. So it's usually lemon or chocolate, damn them. Chocolate, I was going to say. But, you know, even then, I know my limits. I'm not like somebody yeah. who would go on Bake Off. I wouldn't dream oh. of it because they just laughed at me, you know, but it's okay. <laughs> but I think that's the thing about finding your groove. Like you have. Yes. You've found a groove and you've worked that groove. And it's a really great thing to do because you never feel like it can be taken from you because you're it. You're the brand, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, and when you said you found a little place of perfect, apart from the baking, baking a cake, yeah. which is a little which is standard lo- baking. I know. I feel bad when you said eat healthily. I'm thinking, oh yeah, but lockdown diet is quite oh, yeah, often. No, yeah, it's, I yeah, bake a cake because it fills yeah. in time. We've with written the kids. this year off, haven't we? Just written yeah, this absolutely. Year off. Um, I love that though, because yeah, I call it finding your groove. When you actually find, for me, your groove is what are you good at? Yeah. What do you love? What do you and love? what do you get paid well for? paid well for not paid peanuts paid well for and you're good at it and you love it once you when you've got that little bit of groove in the middle that's your sweet spot yeah absolutely so i love this um pareto's law you said 80 percent of your success is from 20 percent of your actions yes. i've got another little stat that i've been love talking it. to all of my guests about about the eight my 80 percent theory so i've got this 80 percent perfect theory which is you know, quite. And this is a gender. This I speak at a lot of gender networks and a lot of I work with a lot of women in business. And there's a sixty percent rule, which is six, men will go for something if they're sixty yeah. percent sure. Whether it's a job interview, whether it's piping up in a meeting, they'll think, "Oh, I'm sixty percent. Yeah, go for it." Whereas a woman is like, oh, "Got to be a hundred percent. Got to be perfect. Got to know everything. Got to. I've got to research." I've got to be clever. I've got to I've got to absolutely know everything that is right and correct before I open my mouth, before I launch, before I jump. And so so my theory is if we all just woke up in the morning, this is for women really, and men as well because men suffer from per- perfection too, but it's quite often a a a women a woman thing. My theory is the 80% law is get up in the morning and one of your morning habits could be I only need to be 80% perfect yeah. today. What do you make of that? Yeah, I think anything. I used to say to people all the time, my staff at work years ago, I used to say to them, never ever give 100% because 100% <laughs> is firstly going to burn you out, but also it's going to give people a really unattainable level to kind of meet you on. Like if all you do is please and try to be perfect, then actually you're going to do yourself a disservice. And I would always say to people, it's slightly similar with the 80%. I'd say work at 80% because then if you really need to push it in, you can kind of do it. And people were horrified because of the idea that I was saying, don't work at your best. But 
I wasn't. I was saying, you know, work at 80% constantly so that you always have enough to give the self. Because if you're not self-full, you end up feeling absolutely jaded and burnt out and resentful. You know, one of the biggest problems in the corporate world is the amount of people who leave jobs. And they leave jobs because they're unhappy, they're burnt out, they don't feel valued. But usually if they look at why, they've just given in. They've constantly given in. They've allowed an agenda that was unhealthy. They've accepted work practices that are meant to be said no to. And once you get that person to say, oh, actually, I can change this. I don't need to leave something. I can actually change it from the inside out. And I can say no. And I can be brave and courageous. And like you said, I can absolutely put my hand up and go, this is my idea. And even if people disagree with it, well, it's still my idea. It doesn't have to be your absolute acceptance of it, but it's still my idea. I think that people need to take more risks with that. I say things constantly that people think are stupid. It's as simple (laughs) as that. I get disagreed with very, very much in many places. And that's okay. Because just because you disagree with me, your opinion isn't my fact. My opinion is my my particular belief system. You know, your opinion is not my fact. And I think that we go around gathering up other people's opinions, using them as against us as our facts, and often making ourselves very unhappy about it. And when you suddenly go, oh, actually, John, who said that, I was wrong. That's just what John thinks. That's just what they think. That doesn't make it right. It makes it different. Does it make it less valuable? And it doesn't mean I can't learn from it. It doesn't even mean that I can hear it and say, well, maybe that's a better idea than mine. It doesn't still play down what you thought. And we have this ridiculous idea in a very Western-centric model. And it comes from school. It's as simple as that. We are lucky to have the education system in the UK. I'm completely behind that. But do not believe for one minute that you are taught the st- anything but the strongest lesson of you are a success and you are a failure. That's it. We've got no reason for that. We actually don't have an education system that can measure intelligence. We know that, but we still do it. We go, well, actually, if you haven't got your French or you haven't got your science and you haven't got a grade in that, then that makes you a successful failure. We teach it from like four years old. Imagine being a four-year-old child going from this perfect experience, if you're lucky, of having great parents and living in a life that's pretty well stocked with food and play. And then you go into school and then somebody goes, you're a success and you're a failure. And we embed it and better and better and better and better. And then we wonder why at the end of it, people come out going, I don't really know whether I'm that good at things. And it's because we've taught them a really bad lesson. It's a really bad lesson. It's something I have to undo constantly. Because oh my goodness, God, I, I feel like I'm on the that. couch now. I feel like I'm on the couch now because when, yeah. <laughs> when I was six and they made me read aloud, I couldn't yeah, read. Of course, and absolutely. I think, I think I'm actually, well, I didn't, I didn't know I was dyslexic. I don't. I still don't know if I am. I actually did an adult dyslexia I am, test I'm online. dyslexic. I'm Are you? Yeah. Well, my, mine was 64% likely to be very dyslexic. I found that out when I was 44. Yeah, 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 yeah. In my 40s. Yeah. I was and, 15, and then, 15 when they found oh, out right. I was dyslexic. Great, great ability oh. to communicate and great at writing, but the point was everything works too fast in my head for the writing when I'm back in the day. So it's like, there are lots of different dyslexia kind of types, but yeah, I went to an educational psychologist when I was 14 and was actually statemented, given the statement at 15. So they gave me 20 minutes more in, exam, in exams because that's what you need when you don't know what oh, you've done wrong. You need 20 more minutes so you can look at what you didn't know you got yeah, wrong in the first great. place. So you can sit, sit there and try and, and yeah, just, just go, I know Oh my goodness. Do I sound like a dyslexic person to you, do you think? (laughs) You're just a great communicator, but then a lot of (laughs) dyslexics are great communicators. That's the problem. You don't translate necessarily at school as you would have done if you were maybe older going and doing it. So like you said, you write now, you've done a book. 
everything gets a bit more easy as you're older because your confidence changes and you understand education isn't as formal as it has been at school. But I think a lot of my job is to undo the damage done of limiting belief systems that don't belong to the person who creates those limits for themselves. You know, they've been given to them and then they've absorbed them. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. It's because, I mean, I'm one of six and we're all very different in my family and one of six children. But my brother, who is older than me, and I've talked about him before, I mean, he was a genius. He was was gifted. He was gifted, right? Yeah. I never resented him because he was boffin. You know, he was properly gifted. He was doing maths when he was four, doing eight-year-old maths. He was in high, you know, he was doing O-levels at 12, whatever. Wow. He was doing, he was playing piano like Beethoven when he was four or five. So, and I was really proud of him. And we'd go to the recitals and we'd go to the, you know, the special concerts and the chess club. Can you imagine? That was the highlight of my childhood, going to chess club. (laughs) (laughs) My brother. I've just watched Queen's Gambit recently and it was brilliant. I'm very into the idea of chess club after that. But But what does he do do now? Has he carried on that No, he's in the the film industry now. He's, um, but he's different as an adult. As an adult, you're not really gifted anymore. You're just quite geeky. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But as a child, you see, I just thought that's, if you're clever, that's what clever looks like. That's a success. You know, it's A grades, really successful, can play music really effortlessly. And I struggled. And I, I actually, I'm not that, I'm not that stupid. When I no, you're right. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I actually got loads of, I got loads of, I was the first year to do GCSEs. Nice. I got, I got 11, 11. And I still thought, oh, no, no, no. But, I, you know, they're not as difficult as O-levels. Well, so that's I what everybody said who did O-levels. Well, I know, not, I'm not, not really uh, clever. Like, I can assure you, having seen my son's GCSEs, that they are very much <laughs> as hard as my O-levels were. GCSEs were, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. So the, the, this is the funny thing when you were saying about success is because I've always thought, I'm not clever. Isn't that... And, 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 and I'm nearly, nearly 50 years old. Mm. And I'm still stuck with that kind of inner, you know... I know I know that's not true because there's, there's being bright and sparky and quick. And, and if you do live programming, you've got to be really, really quick. Yeah, a think quick on thinker. your feet. Think yeah. on your feet and you've got to come up with ideas. And then I'm, you know, and I, my, one of my problems is, you know, I have too many ideas. The problem with you is, Esther, you've got too many ideas. It's like, that's a problem. How can that be a problem? How can yeah, having like, ideas be... It's like your time to hold off for having ideas. I don't know what to do with That's not a problem. That's a good thing. That's why you need to work for yourself as you do. Yes, I think I'm completely unemployable. <laughs> um, so does that sound familiar to you? What's your, what's your verdict on that? If you think you've got too many ideas, what do you do with your brain? Help! I mean, I think when you think you've got too many ideas, it's not because you have too many ideas. It's because people have told you in the past that you're too much or you're too overwhelming. And so you start trying to self-moderate because you just don't want to appear like you're too much. You know, women particularly don't want to appear like they're too much, too appealing opinionated, too knowledgeable. It's just something that from an early age, a lot of people get slammed down for. And it's almost something you internalize. So I think it's less about saying that you have too many ideas and just seeing that the beauty of the brain is like, it's limitless. It's beyond limits. You know, you can sit in your kitchen and be told you're not allowed to leave and all the other stuff that's gone on, but they can't stop you from drifting away to somewhere beautiful in your mind and, you know, to actually visualize and experience and to create thoughts and writing and new ideas about your future and all of that. It's just limitless. So I think that there's never too many ideas. They don't have to be good ideas. Oh, Everybody I'm wants to have great ideas, now. but, you know, ideas are great. You know, you're working that brain of yours. 
so funny though when I'm working with my clients and we're talking about when they're going to speak up and, and come up with their ideas in the meeting and they're going to be speaking to the management team and and they think oh, I've got to be groundbreaking if I do decide to speak up in that meeting it's got to be really good and I can hear them like putting themselves under so much pressure yeah. and also when when people do that though it's like why when have you ever been in a meeting where ever somebody's gone created a groundbreaking idea I mean like it's <laughs> once in a lifetime most people just throw <laughs> ideas in the idea that this has got to be the idea it's like you know the person who's the managing director probably won't ever have had a thought like that. And the other thing is that there's nothing wrong with having the same idea as somebody else. So I think that people almost believe that it does have to be better and bigger than just something that seems quite obvious to them. But I'm like, state the obvious. The one thing that I've learned as a practitioner is I've always thought that solutions are quite easy to find. That's been my mindset. And I remember working in therapy for a while and then realizing that it was the biggest misconception I had that just because I thought something seemed so simple that that person might have thought of it before coming to therapy, actually very often it was groundbreaking and shocking for them. They hadn't ever seen it. Just because I see something as clear and simple, just because I can see the way through something with what I think is more perfect vision, that's just my little bit of extra that I've got in my life. Much like somebody could sit down and do algebra with me all day and it will just never stick. I'm just not got a brain that wants to do that or work with that but it doesn't mean that the person who can do that algebra doesn't think that it's simple they do it's just simple for them and it's like that when you point out the obvious to you you're very often pointing out a blind spot to somebody else and that's why you should always just say what you think just say it state just the obvious it. i'm speaking yeah. to emma kenny here and emma kenny has loads of ideas and you don't just state the obvious you have all kinds of um offerings to the world now you've got this app coming let's talk about the app you've got a, an app that we can use to help us be more confident be more happy and be more brain happy and isn't it called appy your app it is it's called appy so it's been it was the brainchild of mine when i was a single mum and i was broke and I was working a few days a week and my husband had just left. And I remembered going out and buying the Davina DVD. And after about three weeks thinking, I can never listen to this DVD again because I wanted to exercise because I ran every single night, six miles a day. That was what I did for my stress release. And I couldn't do it because I had two little toddlers. And the consequence of that was I thought, what would I really benefit from? So I thought if I ever get to the point where I can do it, I'll do it. So Appy is that brainchild of that single mum who was broke. Aww. And I wanted to be able to give other men, women, whoever, the idea that you're not alone when you're struggling, but also there are cheap, effective ways to be fit, healthy and happy. So Appy has got thousands of fitness videos, thousands of pieces of content all about health and wellness, all by experts. It's got meditation programs, confidence programs. It's got loads and loads of healthy budget meals and plans. And you can plan your own stuff within that. And it's also a social network. So you can chat to other people. It's got people like Dr. Hillary Jones on. It's got me on it. It's got Faith Two Goods, you know, nutrition expert, she's a dietitian. Every single piece of content has been done by an expert. But the main bit is that you don't have to pay for it. That's the thing. I it's just wanted free. To something you free. can be happy and free. Anybody can use it. And again, yeah, it's never going to make up for being around people ever. I would never condescend to say that Appy can replace social contact. It couldn't and it shouldn't. But what it can do is if you're in a situation where you want to get fit cheaply or you want to have meals that are budget or you want to just be able to chat to people who are kind because we have a no troll policy. Trolls get deleted. It's in our community guidelines. If you're abusive, you will not welcome. And there's too much of it. Toxicity online, there's too much of it. It makes people unwell. So Appy is that. And yeah, it's out in beta now and it's got its big launch in about 
three weeks. And it's like the health and fitness and social network that's meant to help everybody be healthy, but has almost killed me. So there's a sweet irony there with the amount of hard work it's taken. And I'm like, now I just need to sleep. But you know, <laughs> I'm hoping it's going to help people. I really I think am. when you're listening to this, Appy will probably be available because it's going to be, in, if you're listening to this in, in the year 2021, yeah. um, you it probably will be out. So have a look, download the app Appy and, and get your well-being fix in little bite-sized chunks and interviews and interactions. It sounds amazing. So two quick questions for you. Emma Kenny, my psychologist guru. Um, first of all, have you met Davina McCall <laughs> since yes. you did her fitness video? Yes. What was she like? What was it like Lovely. when you met her in real life? She's yeah. amazing, isn't she? She's, lovely, she's quite small, but, isn't she? Yeah, she's quite very, petite. very muscly as well. Very I know, muscly. when I saw, I saw her, she looked tiny. Yeah, she, thought, she oh actually photobombed one of my pictures at the um, awards in like London. I went to the awards and uh, she was in the back of a picture of me and Dr. Range and it, she just photobombed <laughs> it. I was like, oh, that's Davina, that's great. But she's lovely. Oh, and also just finally... You've got loads of tips. Your app is a t- is a is a whole thousands of tips within itself. You've talked about daily habits. You've talked about not being overwhelmed by by being a, a slave to your job. Um, but if you could, you know, if we could have a couple of tips, a couple of practical tips to be brain happy and confident, what would they be from you, Emma? I guess the classic one, which I'll always say is smart targets, you know, smart goals, because, you know, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time bound. They're the kind of things that you want to do, little milestones that you work towards. Even now, have micro control over your environment because it's been a really hard time. So create things that will give you that reflection that you've achieved. And then also, I'm a booger for mindfulness. I like mindful practice. So I think if you can bring mindfulness into your daily routine and you don't have to do formalized mindful practice like yoga or brain, you know, body scan or, you know, any kind of meditation program, you can do it just really informally. You can just go and sit outside for 15 minutes and just kind of let yourself be present or do something like five, four, three, two, one technique, which is like five things I can see, four things I can hear, three things I can feel, two things I can touch and one thing that I can taste. You know, those kind of little moments can really bring you back to the present. In fact, I think most of us at the moment need to do more mindfulness than ever. So I would be eating my meals with no screens on, really thinking about the food that I'm eating, really feeling appreciative for it, practicing that gratitude. They might seem like really spiritual connections that people don't automatically feel comfortable doing because it's not their bag. But actually it isn't. It's about improving neural pathways. It's about getting positive neural pathways. Your brain is there to be trained and retrained and conditioned and reconditioned. Just because it doesn't feel like it works effectively now doesn't mean it can't work more effectively in the future. But like anything, you have to put your work in. You always have to put your work in where your brain and your emotions are concerned. So those are the things that I'd recommend. So I've got this aura ring. Have you heard of an aura yeah, ring? Yeah, of course like, I have. It's like an Apple Watch, except it's a ring because yeah. um, um, I don't want to wear an Apple Watch because it's too bulky. So I've got this ring. You can't see it now, but it's um, it's aura O U R A. I don't get paid for it, by the way. I'm not an ambassador or anything <laughs> like that. But it tells me like what I've done for my sleep. It says, "Yeah, you have got 86 percent score. You got a crown for sleeping today." <laughs> it tells you exactly how much sleep you've had. I had a heart condition in 2017, so I am quite mindful of my heart rate. And so yes. when it says you haven't, you got a, your heart rate, you know, you're not recovering in time and all that kind of stuff. So I'm quite mindful of that. But so if, you, if you're listening and you're thinking, oh, what do you mean by mindfulness? Or I haven't got time to do that. I'm not 
I'm not the kind of person that would go and meditate. I, you know, it was completely alien to me being mindful a couple of years ago. But all I can say is with when I, I've got a couple of things that I do with my ring because I look at my heart rate and things. So one of the things is 21 breaths. It's, there's lots of little, I'm sure on your yeah. Appy app, there's things like 21 breaths. breathing, etc. yeah. But, you know, you don't have to be a hippie. You don't have to no. be an expert. But if you just breathe, just think when you're breathing... And do it and just count 21, right? It takes about eight minutes if you do it nice and slowly and you just take your time. But that is really, really, you can really start enjoying it. Um, and you don't have to be a hippie to do it. No. But, uh, but I'm so glad that you're saying all these things because I'm thinking, oh, good. I've actually started doing that. I'm, I'm going to make an appointment, though, to, for me to do it more more every day I'm going to make yeah. sure I do a little you know I do walk and stuff a lot and I make excuses to go out to post a letter or whatever with the kids we go and go to the shop just to get one thing just for the sake of it but actually I think relating it to just breathing and, and being present as you said I think you know I, I absolutely know my head is exploding yeah <laughs> it's exploding I think everyone can you can you if you're listening to this can you hear you know you know that when you're overwhelmed and you're just working so hard your neck is stiff mm. just stand up and walk out and breathe yeah definitely. is that a good idea absolutely and like I said there's nothing like nature to connect you informal mindful practice is nature you can do gardening that'll work just do something that stops you thinking about the future or the past because it's useless there's no point I mean we like to reflect, but the truth is that we can't control either. So it's almost like bring yourself back, give yourself a moment off worry, because if everything's all right here and now, even if things are going to go wrong in the future, they haven't done yet. And you'll manage that at that time, at that point. So it allows you to kind of purposefully and willfully live. And I think that we're in a time where we future focus everything. You know, we're one of the few societies where we're getting told to plan our flipping funeral at 22. What's the point? <laughs> Save for a pension you might never achieve, you know? Why don't you just travel the world instead? Because that's the thing about this fleeting moment of consciousness. It's a breath in the universe. That's it. It's over. And I wonder how many of us will genuinely sit and think, well, I'm really glad that I saved for that funeral plan on your deathbed. Or I'm really glad that I didn't go on that cruise because I was worried that I might not have quite enough money to live on when I was 93. There's something about the richness of the fabric of experience. And I think that that's where confidence lives. And I think that's where human delight lives as well. Emma Kenny, thank you so much. It's pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Virtually Confident Podcast. This podcast has been produced and recorded by Chatterbox Voices and Alchemy Post. It's also been sponsored by the Speak Like a She-Boss Challenge. Check it out at www.estherstanhope.com.